Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Chocolate fans out there may know all about the latest chocolate happenings, from Hershey's Air Delight, a bar of aerated milk chocolate, to Cadbury's new melt-resistant chocolate, which apparently remains solid even after three hours at 104 degrees. But unless you happen to be a chocoholic who follows the financial news, you may not have heard of Chalk Finger, a British hedge fund manager named Anthony Ward. In 2010, Ward purchased 240,000 tons of chocolate, 7% of the global production, and stashed it inside refrigerated warehouses throughout Europe. Ward has been accused by other investors of driving up the price of a commodity that had already seen two years' worth of price increases. Their worries might be valid. Chalkfinger is in a position to influence the market for some time to come. He can continue to store or sell all that chocolate, enough to make over 5 billion candy bars until 2030. This is just one of the secrets Kara Newman reveals in The Secret Financial Life of Food, From Commodities Markets to Supermarkets, in which she examines how commodities markets influence what we eat and how much we pay for food. Newman brings a range of talents to her story, She's a former vice president of strategic research at Thomson Reuters, who's versed in the world of finance. She's also the spirits editor for Wine Enthusiast, writes the weekly Spirited Traveler column for Reuters, and has authored two books of cocktail recipes. She's the sort of writer who can make the history of trading pork bellies or the volatility of global coffee production into a rich and lively read. Join us as Newman takes us into America's culinary and financial history and gives us a glimpse into our global future. Kara Newman, welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, Eric. Well, we're very excited to have you here. You're the author of the new book, The Secret Financial Life of Food from Commodities Markets to Supermarkets. That's correct. Yes. So uh, I'm very excited to get to the book. There's a lot of, it, it goes uh, global and it goes historical and it goes local. Uh, and it'll be fun to touch on all these different facets that you bring to light. But I'm just curious about what, what brought you to this project. Uh, finances and foodies, those are two Fs that don't always go together. Uh, yeah, that's certainly true. Uh, well, now I make my living as a food and beverage writer, but before I started doing this, I worked as a financial writer and editor. And uh, so this is really a mashup of the, the two worlds. But for me, I really came to this when it's, it's sort of a, a strange way to begin, but literally I was reading 
the Newsweekly Barons, and I came across a specific piece of advice from Jim Rogers, who's a noted investment analyst. And his advice was just this two words, buy breakfast. And that really set me down this very long and, and convoluted path. He was talking about not, of course, going out and you know buying an egg McMuffin, but he was talking about going out and buying pork belly futures and pork belly is cured to make bacon and uh, frozen orange juice futures. So that really set me down this path of uh, realizing that we're not just talking about agricultural commodities. We're also talking about food. It's an abstract concept, but really it's rooted in these very physical, uh, tangible things that we eat every day. And uh, the, the commodities markets really do impact what we eat and what we pay for what we eat. And I'm very excited that we're going to get to, to begin to explore that because it is a book that delves into a region um, that you don't see a lot of food writing about. I mean, there's there's various genres of food writing uh, from memoir to you know the history of salt or peanut butter or something like that. But your book really opens up um, an area that, that hasn't been explored. And I think that's one of its virtues. Um, so maybe the place to start would be with the title. Um, we all know about the unsecret life of food, that it's expensive, that you go to the grocery <laughs> and you just think, oh, my gosh. So so what's the secret financial life of food? Well, when I say secret, I don't know that it really is such a, a deep, dirty secret. But I think that there are a lot of aspects of uh how our food trades that we're just not aware of and just isn't really made available to the the average consumer. You go down to the grocery store and this is stuff that's pretty much hidden from you. You don't realize that people are are trading unless you're really up to your elbows in the financial world. So it's really secret from that point of view, but they're they're really secrets hidden in plain view in my opinion. Yeah. Well, let's dive into that. So as someone who's uh, you know, unaware, let's say, of, of what's going on behind the, um, the aisle as I'm you know, looking at the packages of bacon or something like that. Can you just give a little background as to you know, what are futures and the futures market? Um, and then we can start to go into how they affect the way that our, our food and our foodways are shaped. Okay, absolutely. Uh, well, just like a stock represents shares in a corporation, when you're talking about agricultural commodities, you're talking about the contracts really represent shares in physical items, the commodities. So you might be talking about oil or gold, or you might be talking about food-based futures such as soybeans or uh, corn or grains. And while pork bellies no longer trade for a long time, they were really a very critical and uh, well-traded and iconic agricultural commodity. And these these commodities themselves are traded via contracts, and the contracts represent a specific item like corn, a specific um, uh, standard, a specific grade. So you're talking about the, the quality of the corn, not so much how fabulous and sweet the corn is that you might get at the green market, but you're talking about a very specific standard of corn. So one can be delivered I'm saying that with air quotes, uh, since nothing really is actually physically delivered anymore. It's all electronic. Uh, but it's representing a very specific quantity of that commodity, a very uh, quality, I'm sorry, a very specific quantity as well. It's a specific item. And there's a delivery date, too. Um, so it's a specific point in time that would be delivered, that, that future. So hence the name Futures. Yeah, well... 
I mean, just tangentially reading your book, I now understood why we have things like grade AAA eggs um, that I hadn't understood. Ah, it's about, you know, what kind of quality of good is being taken through. Exactly. Um, you wouldn't want to be trading AAA for AA. That would be a really nasty surprise. And when you're dealing with the volume that you are in the agricultural commodities market, that's, it's a really big concern. And so we're suddenly in this world that you begin to showcase in your book where where food becomes a financial abstraction. And uh, you have a really nice line, if we can consume it, we can trade it. Um, And so curiously enough, the way you trace it out is that this begins to shape our actual experience of food as a, you know, physical extant material thing. Um, So how does that begin to work? Uh, How does it shape, you know, the questions you bring up, what we eat and and what we pay for? I mean, it seems like, okay, in an abstract way, I can start to see it shake out. Um, But how does this play out on the trading room floor? Okay, absolutely. Um, since we're, we've already talked a bit about the contracts and uh, the fact that you buy and sell them on the, the trading room floor, whether that's a, a real floor or an electronic floor, uh, what happens is over a period of time, you have price patterns that emerge. Uh, prices go up, prices go down. And one of the main things that the commodities market does for us as people who buy food at the at the supermarket or, or wherever, um, it sets, it's what's called price discovery. It sets an actual price for us to be able to base the prices at the supermarket upon. Over the long range, we'll see prices go up or go down. On a daily basis, we see prices go up and down in a very volatile way. It'll go up dramatically. It'll crash dramatically up and down, up and down, often in the space of the same day or a couple of days. And if that happened at the supermarket, that would drive us bananas. It would be really frustrating to try to go to the supermarket and find that one day uh, the price of eggs is $1.25 and the next day it's $3. That would just be Uh, really frustrating and hard to plan a budget around. Uh, So what the commodities market does for us is it helps to smooth out prices over a longer period of time. Things go up and down on a daily basis on the commodities market, but over the long term, things don't really filter into the supermarket for about a year and a half. So we have that, that smoothing effect. It helps take the volatility out of prices for us as consumers on a day-to-day basis. Another thing that it really does for us is, again, the concept of price discovery. It sets a price for us. And whether we're buying food at the green market or at the supermarket, you know that the price of a specific item is going to be within um, a certain range. You're not going to be caught by surprise by um, a price being completely out of whack. And having these centralized markets helps People in any realm of food manufacturing or retail set prices. And then I think the the last thing it does that's so critical for us as consumers is it really helps set pricing at restaurants. There's actually someone I talked to for the book who functions as a restaurant consultant. And one of his main functions is uh, he works with prices set through the the commodities market as uh, predictive indicators of where prices are going to go. So he's able to work with restaurants and say, well, you know, you're going to sell, let's say, hamburgers. What's the price of meat likely to be 
going down the road for the next couple of quarters. If uh, if the price of beef is likely to skyrocket 25%, you might want to think about changing your, your menu. Maybe you don't want to sell hamburgers. Maybe you want a vegetarian concept instead. If the price of cheese is likely to go up, maybe you don't want to be selling cheeseburgers. Maybe you need to substitute uh, a different item on on those burgers if the price of cheese will be prohibitive. Maybe you want an entirely different menu concept. But these are really important items for for a restaurant or a manufacturer to, to know. It's so tremendously important to uh, a food business, whether they're going to be able to make or or break going forward. You need to have some sort of uh, idea of what your food prices, what your ingredients are going to look like is so critical. It can really cause a business to tank if they have no visibility whatsoever. And the commodities market is actually a very useful tool for setting those, uh, those price inputs down the road and seeing into the future what your prices might be. And uh, suddenly after you, you read this account that you've given in the book and you suddenly see the, the latest restaurant on the corner or actually better yet chain on the corner rolling out some new item, you think, is this based on the price of beef going up or down? Um, and you start, <laughs> these hidden wheels, I think that, that you're right, are the secret in plain sight suddenly start to, to fuel into decisions that you think, you know, they're on posters and they're three for a dollar or whatever it turns out to be. So it's a fascinating way to think about it. Um, in terms of the, the trading itself, you begin to describe the different players who are involved in the process and the, the benefits that come out of it. And I'm just wondering if you could get a sense of, as the trading's happening, uh, who are the people that are doing it? So there, there are the, the farmers, ostensibly, who are providing, um, and they get a certain benefit. And then there are these speculators uh, that we hear so much about that are getting their hand in to try to do something. So how does that all shake out? Uh, well, the people who are doing the actual trading are, are quite frankly, traders and primarily speculators. Uh, but they're often doing trading on behalf of other parties. Um, those might be agricultural firms like the Monsantos of the world. Uh, they might be farmers, larger scale farmers usually, who need to find a way to, to hedge prices. Um, I think also an important question to think about when you're talking about the the farmers in particular is and actually all of the the participants is what those what's going to impact the the prices what are they trying to hedge against and if you think about just the swings in the weather it's amazing how that can impact harvest going forward uh, just one good frost and it can really ruin a harvest in some cases. One good storm and you're, you're done for. Uh, crop disease, that's another important factor to try to, to guard against. Uh, so you're thinking about the farmers are trying to find a way to find insurance for their prices. You're trying to think about the manufacturers who are somewhere in the chain. I think that the, the coffee manufacturers are an especially interesting example because you have the growers um, outside of the, the U.S., you have uh, people growing the coffee beans, you have the roasters, you have the retailers who are trying to get the, the beans from, uh, the importers, I should say, who are trying to get the beans from other countries here. You have the, the manufacturers in some cases who are processing 
the, those beans into, say, cans at the supermarket or, or bags of, of beans. And then you have the, the retailers like the Starbuckses of the, the world, and they're, they're selling directly to the consumer. And every one of those, those people needs to find a way to hedge against prices suddenly dropping or spiking and ruining their, their projections for, uh, for coming quarters. And the commodities market is a tool that they, they use to help find, um, find that protection going forward. So what would be my incentive? I, I'm going to ask a lot of naive questions. And That's I hope okay. you'll bear with me. So just in terms of seeing how it works, um, what would be my incentive as an investor to you know, buy into the futures on coffee with the possibility that it could just be ruined that it, that you know the coffee crop come out terribly um I, I you painted a wonderful portrait of you know what's in it for the coffee companies to make sure that they can hedge against the loss of their own profits um but why would i speculate in that if there's a good chance that you know what they're protecting themselves against could end up happening um well in terms of the the speculators and i assume that's what you mean when you say investors uh, if the the prospect that the market's going to go down uh there are certainly ways to to trade with that in mind you can actually make a lot of money if you're betting that the market's going to go down um of course if you're betting that the market's going to go up and it goes down that's a different story you're going to lose a lot of money but um, it's interesting that you bring up the investors and the speculators because they're really representing a growing portion of the of the investors, the players in the the commodities market, almost to an alarming point. There have actually been um, arguments raised that there are too many speculators and not enough people with a vested interest in what's going on in the in the actual farming world and commodities world that they're people who are just in it to make a quick buck or sometimes a not so quick buck and they're driving the market up and down and, and just introducing tremendous volatility. It's really been a very um, important cause for concern and there's probably more money in the commodities market now than at any other point in, in history. Yeah, And this is, uh, for me anyway, a kind of scary point that comes up at the end of your book where you compare, you know, the real cost of food prices with what's happening as a result of Wall Street speculation. Um, and you start to to think, you know, what's going to happen if if some great disc chunk occurs, which we've seen in, in uh, other markets, and it's not always worked out so well. Um, could you give us an example of how that's happening at the moment in a particular commodity? Right now, I think wheat is probably the, the most prominent example. Wheat prices have just been tremendously volatile, and it's making it very difficult to predict on a global basis where, uh, where food prices are, are likely to go because it's just very difficult to get visibility. And there's actually been um, a tremendous amount of concern about how food prices are going to come in relative to food supply. There's, um, there have been several studies coming out of uh, the United Nations right now saying that um, we're not necessarily in a place where looking as far down the road as, say, 2050, we may have a lot of trouble in feeding people around the world. And in the commodities market right now, this is not just a U.S. market. The book that I wrote really focuses on U.S. trading 
the markets that are, are literally located here in the U.S. But looking forward, it's not going to be a global market. It's sorry, it's not going to be a, a, a U.S. only market. It's going to be a global market, and prices are going to be very much impacted by what's going on in the world, not just what's going on here. The price of wheat in the Midwest is only going to be one input. We also have to take into account all the people around the world, um, worldwide demand and worldwide supply for wheat and for, for other, other items too. And it's, it's really quite alarming. Yes, you bring up that it, it's not for nothing that McDonald's and Starbucks are starting to you know figure out how to get an input into China. Um, and that companies are beginning to think more and more globally, even about these commodities. Um, I feel like I need to to make sure that listeners do know that um, your book gives a wonderful picture of how this process works in the present, but it's primarily concerned with uh, the history of the commodities markets here in America and how they emerge and how they've developed. Um, and and do you want to tell us a little bit about the the structure of the book and how you set it up? Um, oh, yeah, I'd, I'd love to. It's funny, we do get really caught up in talking about what's going to happen in the future and all these gloom and doom predictions. But I had a really, uh, really fun time working on the book. And it's actually, I, I think, relatively lighthearted. Um, the book itself is structured both by uh, time past to, to present, but also um, it uses the, the commodities itself to tell the story. So I have chapters devoted to specific commodities um, like um, eggs. There's the, the whole story of the butter and egg men in one chapter and the story of soybeans and Tino DeAngelis, the, the software, oh, sorry, the, the soybean king and his story as a, a speculator in the, the 1950s and 60s. It's really about the, the past and how, it's helped, how commodities have helped build our nation. And I would love to jump into one. It, it's amazing the number of names that pop up. And it is, it's, it's, there's a, a sense of humor that runs through the book and an eye for kind of the telling detail and the pull-out box that lets you do it. So, you know, there's the king of soybeans, but there's the lord of lard. I mean, they're all in there. <laughs> Um, I like to think that history is about people and it's about their stories. History doesn't have to be boring, not at all. Not especially not these guys. No, this is not. And you know, I got this book um, happily from Columbia University Press, and I thought I'm about to jump into the history of commodities markets. What have I gotten myself into? And I was <laughs> delighted by how how breezily and and, and informative it was um, as a read. Uh, could you take us a little bit into the history of pork bellies because it, it even bears on how we get the name Wall Street. Oh, absolutely. Now, pork bellies traded for 50 years. And, you know, sad for me as I was writing the book, they stopped trading last year. But they have this long and, and uh, really iconic position in, um, in agriculture and in the stock market, too. I'm sorry, in the commodities market, too. It's, it's really just something we've, we've had. But um, you're right. It's part of how we've created Wall Street, too. Um, when New York was, was first being built back in the early days, the wall that was built that became Wall Street was put to put there to help keep the the herds of of wild pigs, the wild hogs, from uh, marauding the colonial villages down at the tip of, of Lower Manhattan. I still can't believe that anywhere 
in in New York City, we had wild pigs. But and I would have to applaud your restraint for not taking a shot at making that symbolic somehow. (laughs) There are a lot of there are a lot of you you quote a lot of bad puns uh, that that people have made over the years, um, especially in headlines reporting about some of these commodities that are that are very funny. But you you. You have restraints. You don't. You don't delve into them in the same sort of lugubrious way. Um, so, bravo there. <laughs> I think my editor may get some of the credit for that. Good editors save us from ourselves. <laughs> so, pork bellies. What is it? I mean, we we might. It, it's a, it's an item on a high end restaurant menu, right? Exactly, but it really refers to that cut of pork from the underbelly of the the pig. It's interesting, the things you learn in, in doing research. You've got the back of the pig, that's the, the fat back, the Canadian fat back. And then you've got the, the belly and the front. And technically, a pig has two bellies. And when those are cured, it becomes bacon. It, pigs are strange animals. We we were with uh, one of our local farmers just the other day, and he, he had to explain to us that the pig butt is actually the shoulder. And so you suddenly start to realize what that kind of abstraction on an animal can begin to do. Maybe it's best not to think about it too closely. <laughs> uh, but when they first started trading uh, pork bellies in the, the early 60s, there was a lot of debate about what to call the, the contract um, there was some concern that pork belly was just unseemly. No one wanted to call it that. It's what the pork processors called it. And they wanted to, some of the, the earlier um, buttoned up execs wanted to just call it uncured bacon, which is interesting because when we first started to see bacon come, I'm sorry, pork belly come back to the restaurants in about 2000 or so, um, a lot of them did call it on their menus, uncured bacon. But eventually people came around and it was decided that since the pork processors, who, again, were some of the, the traders who would want to get those, those contracts out there, they called it pork belly. That was their, their stock and trade. So in the end, they grudgingly agreed to call the contract pork belly. And you have some some nice moments in the history of pork belly. I think one of the most uh, visual scenes for me was... Um, in the 1970s, when you suddenly had housewives storming into supermarkets and accosting their butchers. <laughs> I think for a lot of them, that was probably the first time they were even aware that prices were were going up and down on the exchange. They'd go in and I mean, that was a time of a very serious um, meat crisis, meat shortage. And yeah, they would storm into the supermarket. They'd be picketing the supermarket and demanding to know why prices on bacon were going up or down. And they would say, I read in the paper that the the price of pork went down today. Why isn't your price down? And I'm sure some of the, the grocers relented because I'm sure some of these people were just so ferocious. They had to. But um, again, when you think about the, the function of the commodities market, it really, it was to help avoid things like this. You don't want to see the price of bacon going up and down on a daily basis like this. You want things to be smoothed out. But it's, it's quite, a, yeah, quite a mental picture. Yes. I, I don't want to take us too far away from pork bellies. Um, but at the same time, you give a wonderful story about uh, working on the book and drinking your coffee that I think illustrates uh, this idea of, of price stabilization um, so nicely. I wonder if you mind sharing that. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, in the introduction, I have to admit it, it's, it's dramatized a little bit. Um, it's, it's certainly, tr- it's a true story, but it's, it's conflated a bit for the sake of effect. Um, but in talking about coffee futures and understanding for the first time what it is that impacts coffee, um, I just had a few days, you know, really trying to follow the coffee price very, very closely, trying to understand what was happening to, you know, that, that coffee in my cup and realizing that one day there was a tremendous frost going on. I think it was in Brazil that really impacted the the price of coffee. There were a lot of concerns that there was going to be a very serious shortage of, of coffee beans from Brazil and it made the price skyrocket because suddenly it was perceived as being very scarce. And a couple of days later, the the frost had melted a bit and, you know, the, the price came back. It wasn't so horrific after all. And then a couple of days later, there was a storm in another part of the world. And again, there was another violent swing and, you know, the storm eventually blew over and, and prices readjusted again. But it was really interesting to think about how these enormous events going on elsewhere in the world, which I'd never even seen, were impacting the, the price of, of coffee. And at the same time, you could go to the store and see a can of Folgers sitting on the shelf, you know, not budging. There was no run on it. There was no major panic. Um, there have been times in history when there have absolutely been panics, whether it's people picketing for pork bellies at the the supermarket or rushing to buy up all the wheat because you think there's going to be a serious shortage. Um, But at the same time, there was that jar of Folgers sitting in the the store, no no run on it, no spike in price. Everything is just very, very stable. And it was really very sobering to realize just how precarious it, it really is when you, you sit down and think about it. And I, you know, as, as someone who's uh, not in the financial world, it always seems to me just sort of a given. There are the markets, right? There are the traders. That's just sort of part of American life. Um, but one of the, the things you do with the case of coffee or the case of pork bellies is that you trace the origin of how these markets emerge, sometimes from quite humble origins. Um, so I wonder if you'd take us, maybe tell us the story of the, of the beginning of a commodities market. Uh, you told us how pork bellies came to an end. Um, but it, I, there's something fascinating about seeing this thing that has such tremendous power. I mean, I think it, one quote you give in the book is, we're talking about something like $260 billion worth of financial transactions in 2008, according to the UN. So this is a tremendous amount of money we're talking about. Um, and get some of the origins of these uh, trading trading organizations. You know, it's a couple of farmers, it seems as though it begins. Yeah, exactly. And if you're talking about the, the U.S. markets in particular, a lot of it gets traced back to, I think it's Haynes Feed Market on the banks of the, the Chicago River. And literally, you just have people trying it all comes down to people that's what i keep trying to remind myself who are just trying to make a living and they're trading one commodity for another um sometimes it's a barter system sometimes it's a matter of trading um goods for for money and over the course of time it gets more and more sophisticated uh buildings are are built to to house the traders against the the rain there have been times where there weren't enough people to even get a full robust market going and I think it was the Chicago 
uh, Board of Trade in its earliest days needed to entice traders to come to to the market building and do their trade there. They'd entice them with a sumptuous free lunch of bread and cheese and crackers and ale. Of course, there had to be ale. Well, of course, that's going to get you trading more. <laughs> and I didn't think about it that way. And uh, eventually, more and more trade took place. Eventually, they were able to do away with the sumptuous free lunch. And uh, over time, the uh, rival was built across town. You had the, the patrician Chicago Board of Trade on one side of town trading wheat and grain and, uh, and corn. And then on the other side, you had the rough and tumble Chicago Merck. And this was largely an immigrant exchange. You had a lot of people, uh, a lot of Irish, a lot of um, Italians, and they were in the meat trade. You had people who were former pork packers and cattle traders, and they were also doing the same thing, just just um, trying to trade and make a living and hedge against price swings, but just using different commodities. And it's interesting that over time, you had these rivalries going on, but you know, both rising from the ground, eventually merging into a single institution, uh, the, the CME group. And from, from humble origins, you have uh, an empire built. And suddenly that empire is, is shaping the way we eat and what we can buy and when and how. And how much we pay for it. And how much we pay for it. Quite true. Um, well, in terms of the, the methodology of the book, it's, it's fascinating the way that you've put this story together. Um, as you state at the, the opening of the book, uh, these financial markets, they aren't you know, transparent. There's never been sort of, you know, an open archive, um, that there's a certain amount of secrecy that's, uh, that's in play in just the way that they work. And so your book is, does both the work of the historian and going through archives and, and bringing out materials. But then there's also a lot of interviews that you're, you're putting together and piecing together, um, with people that are currently in the financial scene or are historians of the financial scene. Um, and so I just, I'm curious, curious uh it's a question i like to ask historians who jump into the archive what was what was the favorite thing you found as you began to to research this book the discovery that excited you my single my single favorite find let's say a. was the existence <laughs> no please go ahead i was, didn't want you to have to limit it to one <laughs> <laughs> the existence of the american liquor exchange tell us about that that, that's that was great. a gift <laughs> For a liquor writer. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, that was a gift. I didn't even know that existed. It wasn't part of my original concept at all. But as someone who writes about spirits and cocktails, it was really exciting to, to not only find that it existed, but to find a private collector who had a photo who was willing to let me publish it in the book. And here we are just months away from, it's the, I think it's the 80th anniversary of repeal day um but we had a shortly after prohibition ended and uh as it was being repealed in in 1933 we had a group of of people who sat here in new york uh setting all the prices for the whiskey and wine and brandy that was about to flood 
back into the United States after the end of Prohibition. And it's an amazing photo. I love this photo so much. You can literally see the gentleman in their three-piece suits and their perfectly coiffed hair sitting in a boardroom that overlooked Park Avenue. And right behind them is an enormous board, which is listing all the different prices. And you can actually see what Johnny Walker was going for in, in 1933, just as we were about to start getting our hands on all that whiskey again. I mean, what a business to be in at that time in history. Just amazing. It is a beautiful photograph. And tell us what Johnny Walker was going for. Um, I can't recall offhand, but it was less than a, a case, a case of 100 was going for less than a single bottle goes for today. I can tell you that. Yes, I, I found myself trying to read it as well. Um, it's just fascinating. And, uh, and you know, we should mention that, that these uh, bits of archival evidence um, run throughout the book, and they just add such a layering to it um, as it moves forward. Well, where did you find yourself as you, you come to the end of this book and you, you paint a portrait of, uh, of food that we don't often see in America um, on the Food Channel or, or in a lot of food writing? Um, and I'm curious, how has it changed your experience of, say, going to the market or going out to eat? Uh, well, I'm a lot more skeptical when it comes to prices. I, I now officially hate overpaying. Never loved it before, but now I resist it even more. So what does that look like? On a daily basis, you're you're out at the. Uh, I think you're in New York, aren't you? I am. So you're at Union Farmers Market. Um, I think. Well, I actually, think when I think about the farmers markets, um, what I see when I go to the farmers market is. It's going to sound a little cynical, but I see an opportunity to opt out of the the whole commodities chain. I think one of the dirty secrets that nobody really talks about when it comes to the commodities market is that if you really, really want to, I'm not saying that the commodities market is evil either, but if you really, really want to opt out of the commodities uh, market, you you can. You have that option. Uh, You just need to buy direct from farmers and not to go through the middleman. When I go to my local green market, um, what I see are the people who are providing their products direct to the consumer. They're not unlike um, a large coffee chain where you're seeing that commodity traded over and over five and six times before it finally gets to you, the consumer. You're seeing somebody there who's selling um, their their fruits and vegetables directly to the end user. There's there's no middleman in there. That's what I see. And what what you show in the book is that what you're paying for at that point is the food in your food. And there are some startling uh, portraits that you give of things like cornflakes, where it suddenly becomes odd to think about what you're paying for when you buy that box of cornflakes. You oh, think you're yeah. buying the food, but no, that's not the case at all. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to, I mean, cornflakes, that's a great example. When you buy that that package of cornflakes, only, I think the stat is only 15% to 20% of every dollar goes toward that raw commodity used in that box of cornflakes. And the rest goes to advertising, transportation and fuel, um, uh, marketing, advertising, uh, labor, real estate. Uh, there's so many other inputs. In the end, you're paying more for the packaging than you are for the corn in your cornflakes. I always love it when an interview somehow gives a shot in the shoulder to the farmer. It just seems like it's a great place to go. Um, well, so 
this book, it's it's fascinating. It's full of these histories. Um, I think one of the things is to point out is that it's very reader friendly in the sense that you can sit down and you can read about those butter and egg men. And it's, it's kind of the perfect thing to read over lunch and then pick up the next day and read a little bit about soybean history. Um, toward the end of the book, you do a little bit of speculation about what might be the commodities markets of the future. And it, it's fascinating. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, well, it, we haven't had a whole lot of new commodities uh, joining the, the U.S. exchanges recently, so I took it upon myself to to think about what else might possibly trade if if you know if we so wanted it to. And I was thinking about things like olive oil, for example. It trades in Spain, where it's a very important product, but it doesn't trade here. Yet we consume a whole lot of it. I know I consume a whole lot of it. So why wouldn't we be trading olive oil as opposed to? corn oil or canola oil, which trades in, in Canada, but not here. Um, I was also thinking about things like honey. Uh, again, that's another product that I use frequently. I imagine you probably do as well, but it doesn't trade the same way sugar trades. Yet at the same time, we have the USDA providing regular pricing for it in, in their publications. So if we wanted to create some sort of original honey contract, then we have this history of, of pricing to fall back on. You, you even bring up the cassava as a possibility. <laughs> People love talking about the cassava. So it's funny. Just, it's probably just so nice to say, but at the same time, it's, it's fascinating um, to think about, uh, you know, produce that, that doesn't have a long history here in America suddenly becoming something that becomes part of the American financial system. Yeah, I mean, it's this this starchy root vegetable that provides a lot of um, food value in other countries. Um, we even use it for for rubber, but we don't we don't trade it because we don't I don't know we don't think about it. But if we're thinking about how our markets likely to shape up in the future, how global they're likely to be, we really need to think about products that we might not consume but are important to other countries, like the the humble cassava. Hmm. Well, I will look out for it. Uh, <laughs> well, as as you had said when we started the interview, th this book is a wonderful mashup of different sorts of intellectual interests and different methodologies, and I think that's what makes it uh, singular and fascinating to read. So I'm curious about uh, this from a writer who also does uh, cocktail I guess, recipe books and, uh, you know, blogs and uh, writes on spirits. Um, where are you going next in your work? What might we find? Are we going to see something coming out from another university press? Are we going to see some new thing at the on the menu at a bar that we had never seen before? Um, what's next for you? Well, my next project is taking me back to the cocktail world. I have another book coming out in May called Cocktails for a Crowd. And it's all about uh, cocktails for large groups like pitchers and punches and bottled cocktails and things like that. And I think, you know, if you're willing, it would be a, a great thing to maybe hear a little bit about one of your spicy cocktails, perhaps something that you could make with Johnny Walker and uh, <laughs> raise it to the past, even as you're tasting the future. <laughs> That's actually a great idea. I mean, spicy cocktails, there's just so much about the 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 grain and, and whiskey connection. Thank you so much for bringing that up. 
Um, yeah, my first book was called Spice and Ice, and it was all about spicy cocktails. I used to be the, the cocktail columnist for Chili Pepper magazine. And I think any good bourbon can be paired with a, a good chili pepper infusion, let's say a little bit of lemon, a little bit of simple syrup, and I think you'd have a, a fantastic cocktail worthy for toasting to any era in history. And I can only imagine what kind of a fun conversation that would be, given the one that we've just had when you could go from, here's what we're going to do for the next drink, to uh, let me tell you a little bit about you know the history of coffee, sugar, and cocoa. <laughs> Next time we have to have a conversation over cocktails. That sounds ideal. We'll bring the mic and go from there. Well, Kara, thank you so much for being on the show. It was a delight to have you. Thank you, Eric. It's my pleasure. All right. Well, best of luck with the, the next book and with this one. Thank you. This is Eric LeMay, and you've been listening to an interview with Kara Newman, author of The Secret Financial Life of Food, From Commodities Markets to Supermarkets, on the New Books Network.